Hello and welcome to How to Start Up, a podcast for anyone starting a company. This is a collection of conversations with people who have all successfully started, run and even sold their own companies, sharing not only professional but personal experiences on what we should be doing now, next or never. Hosted by me, Juliet Fallowfield, founder of PR consultancy for startups, Fallowfield and Mason. Given many founders are experts in their own fields, but not when it comes to the more technical side of things, I wanted to create this mini-series that provides listeners with a practical checklist covering all sorts of things from accounting, legal, HR and recruitment, ethical and sustainable practices, investment, as well as public relations. This all falls under the I don't know what I don't know, given how many new areas you have to learn when starting a company. As this mini-series is a more practical how-to, I wanted to speak to an experienced investor to help understand not only the jargon surrounding this area, but key points to consider when seeking investment as a startup. In this episode, we hear from Costas Calisperis, founder of Intune Executive Coaching. Costas is well-placed to talk on this given his extensive and diverse advisory experience across law, investment banking, private equity and angel investing. And now he helps executives reach their next set of goals and ambitions through his executive coaching company. Hi Costas, thank you so much for your time today joining How to Start Up. It would be great if you could start off by briefly introducing yourself and a bit about your background. Sure, thanks Juliet. Delighted to be with you this morning. My name's Costas and I'm the founder and CEO of Intune Executive Coaching Limited, which is a business which coaches founders, entrepreneurs and leaders in organizations to be in tune with themselves, tap into their resourcefulness and achieve their business and personal goals. Prior to founding this business, though, I was a lawyer and an investment banker for about 25 years combined, advising a whole range of companies from startups to multi-billion pound businesses on how to raise capital, buy and sell companies and execute their strategies. And I guess over the last five years in particular, I've been an angel investor in a number of consumer tech businesses and now sit on the board of two I care most about, which are called Near Street and Supper London. Amazing. Thank you. For me, I'm working in a co-working space. I started a company a year ago. I'm having lots of chats with lots of entrepreneurs, um, both clients and friends. And investment is the word that comes up again and again and again. It would be wonderful if we could go into a little bit of detail as to what different types of investment are available for new founders. Sure, absolutely. It's a real mix. I mean, most entrepreneurs tend to find friends and family who know them, know their track record and their history, understand what they're trying to achieve with their new business, and are prepared to give them a small amount each. And that helps either create the product or the idea uh, so that they can build on that. But many people obviously don't have the benefits of having friends and family who can do that. And then there are other opportunities to seek capital from retail investors. You must have heard of the crowdfunding sites. There are many of those where basically you offer your idea up and investors who are all individuals have the opportunity to sign up and become uh, shareholders in your business. Or you can find angel lists or associations of high net worth individuals, successful ex-executives who've built a pool of capital and they're looking to back to new entrepreneurs in their new ventures. So those are the first ports of call. There's a lot of jargon around this that I would love to get a little bit more clarity on. You hear the words unicorn, angel, SEIS, EIS. It'd be great if you could just give an overview of those. Sure, yeah. Well, unicorn is a double-edged sword, right? Because unicorn is not only the mythical creature, (laughs) but it means a highly desirable but difficult to obtain outcome. That's what the meaning of unicorn is. And unicorn in the venture world is used to describe privately held 
startup companies that are valued at a billion dollars and above. The reason it's a double-edged sword is for every unicorn, right, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of failed businesses. So if you think about the investors who are looking for their unicorn, chances are you're not going to be one of them. So that's a word of warning, right? That investors who are looking to spread their money around hundreds of companies may not particularly care about yours because they're only looking for one to make it all worth their while. But that's what a unicorn is. It's a private startup company that's valued at above a billion dollars whilst privately held. So in terms of the SEIS? SEIS is for smaller businesses. EIS stands for the Enterprise Investment Scheme. And it's there to offer tax incentives to high net worth individuals. We, we talked about those earlier in order to encourage them to invest in startup businesses. So the way it works is that there are tax breaks for doing that. Mm -hmm. So you get a tax deduction for the amount you've invested every year and you get a tax loss if the company fails. So it's a way of incentivizing, encouraging people with capital to invest in startup businesses. And if you can qualify for CIS or EIS, depending on the stage of your business, then clearly you can tap into that pool of angel investors more effectively because their interests are encouraged. Amazing. And I gather the UK is hugely geared towards supporting this. So that's quite encouraging. Absolutely. And at what stage of the new business idea could or should founders start to think about investment? Such a difficult question. It's a very good one, but it's a difficult one because it really depends on where they are. Some new businesses are built on prior experience, right? So you probably already have a bit of a track record. Maybe you're doing it on the side of your main job, or you may have decided, having worked in an industry, to do your own thing. So clearly you'll have more thought around what your new business will be in that situation. So it sort of depends. I would say it sort of depends on how much capital, sadly, <laughs> you think you need to get to a stage where you can prove that your business has traction. And if it's a product-based business, you may have heard of the phrase MVP, or it's a commonly used phrase, minimum viable product. Some people say, well, I need to create a minimum viable product, something that is almost a, an, an example of what the product might look like, which I can test in the market, get some feedback, improve it, and thereafter you know, launch it commercially. So if it's a product-based business, you might need whatever it is, tens of thousands of pounds, perhaps, to build a prototype effectively, an MVP. If it's a services-based business, it may be around creating a website, finding associations that can help you find clients. So it really depends on the type of business, but I would work backwards, which is try to assess the minimum amount you think you need to get to a place where people can look at your business and have an initial view, at least, of what it does mm -hmm. and whether it addresses a particular need. That also leads me on to what would founders need to prepare or prove or deliver. And I think it sort of touches on what you've just said, but is there anything else that they would need to do in terms of paperwork or tracking or delivery to be able to take to investors? Again, it really depends on the stage. I mean, there's so much out there online, actually, that's really good. There are so many startup businesses that actually offer you free examples of the types of content you should have in, in what they call an investment deck, you know, presentation that you use to raise capital with. And they're all outstanding. But it's just being very clear about the proposition, very clear about what problem you're trying to solve and how you're solving it, you know, explaining how you're going to generate revenue doing what you're doing and really just trying to preempt the sorts of questions that people would ask you. So the basics are explaining what you do and why you're doing it, right? And what experience you have or expertise you or your team have in delivering. The better decks are the more creative and thought through decks, which are more likely to result in some engagement from investors try to preempt the obvious questions they're going to ask you. And those are often around things like, well, what do the competitors do? How do you differentiate your business? Because there are many follow-on copycat businesses these days. How is it that 
I can believe that your business is going to be the survivor business. So the best investor decks not only explain your business, but try to preempt the sort of challenges and questions that investors are likely to ask you. So you don't go around three times iteratively answering this whole series of follow-up questions. That's so interesting you say that about the comp set, because I find with the line of work I'm in in communications, it's exactly the same. You need to know your environment really well when you're defining your own brand tone, voice, or your own communication strategy, you just know what your comps are doing as well as what you're doing. Absolutely. Not be too insular. Yeah. And what should they look for in a financial backer or even avoid? Oh, they come in all shapes and sizes. That's the problem, especially in venture. Especially, so venture capital is an area which allows so-called sophisticated investors to invest in companies, and it's not regulated. So they might just be ex-senior executives from businesses who try to raise capital from their contacts and then invest in businesses, or they may be senior investors from other areas that have set up a new venture fund. So it's difficult to say what type to look for, but ultimately in life, it's all about building trust with people, uh, first and foremost. And therefore, rather than focusing on the firm, because there are some great names out there, focus on the individual within that firm who cares about your business and try to assess where you will rank in their portfolio. Difficult thing to do as a founder. But it's a very important thing to think about, right? Because if you're one of 100 investments they're going to make and they're looking for the one unicorn, you may get a sense for that, that you're going to be an investment, but not a priority investment. Whereas if you are one of five investments for a particular angel or a particular smaller group of venture capitalists, then it's more likely they're not just offering you their capital, but they'll spend more time helping you nurture it. So that's one sort of broader observation. The other thing, to be honest, and it kind of ties into your legal podcast, but it's so important, is really work out exactly what fees they're going to charge you, how much equity they're going to want, and how much control, most importantly, they're going to exercise over your business. And what happens if it goes wrong? I remember on your legal podcast, it was all about exit. You know, what, what happens if things go wrong, like a prenup? Those are the areas I've most often found inexperienced founders fall into because it's very difficult to know what's market practice for how much equity people want or how many fees they charge you. So I think being cautious around human dynamics and thinking through fees, percentage of equity and control are probably top of my list. Amazing. And I mean, I'd assumed it would be incredibly complex and expensive to start a company. And this unknown is probably the main reason for me not to take the leap sooner. Could you potentially talk through what there is not to be scared of? And in the theme of now, next or never, any common mistakes people make at the beginning that they could avoid? Sure. As you say, and I think as you've discussed on another podcast, setting up a company is pretty straightforward. More important are things like accounting, tax and all the legals court of establishing the entity yeah, that you will operate under. So those things are pretty straightforward. They involve some cost, right? But they're not overly frightening once you address them. In terms of the business itself, I think the only advice I can really give, which is not to worry about the long-term vision, because if your business is to be, I don't know, the leading X in this market, as a founder, that can seem pretty overwhelming. Obviously, you should have a long-term vision because otherwise you won't convince anybody to back you. But I think the way you get started is to think about the immediate practical next steps that you need to address in order to start to build that vision. And there's a famous Tanzanian proverb that I use actually in my executive coaching often, which says, a little by little makes a lot. But the other thing perhaps that you should think about first and foremost is the hardest thing for any company, and that's customer acquisition. You know, every business needs some customer. And most businesses fail because they underestimate the cost of getting customers, whether it's marketing cost, whether it's the freemium model, offering free stuff before you can charge for it, 
but all those customer acquisition expenses really do pile up pretty quickly before you've built revenue. So what I have seen successful entrepreneurs do is really think about that model, how they're going to tap into customers. And if they cannot do it directly on an efficient basis, who could they partner with to funnel potential clients their way? And when it comes to the next stage, and I was joking yesterday with somebody, I feel like I'm in stage two of a computer game, given I've just anniversarized my company, and it's a lot harder. The first year, you're full of adrenaline, you're full of drive, and suddenly you hit year two, and you're like, build, right. And I was going to say, in terms of scaling or getting that growth underway, is there anything that they need to really be aware of or savvy to? Yes, I think it's actually a really good question because the first stage, as you say, is full of adrenaline and hope and aspiration. And then you get to, right, now what's next? And I guess there are two things. And again, the most successful founders have the humility to do this. It's the ability to pivot, which is a phrase that everybody uses now in venture, which is learning the lessons you've learned in your first year or two, whenever that moment is. How is it that you can pivot the business to be more successful. And again, I go back to this customer acquisition point. It's often around building traction with your customers because you may have built a great product, you may have had a few successes, but the next stage really is scaling it. And sometimes it takes the humility to recognize where there's a need to pivot the business and do it differently in order to grow it. Someone else said that to me once. As long as you're okay with the company you're running in five years is going to look nothing like the company you start now, then great. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Is there any accreditation that founders should look for in investment partners? To be honest with you, where I would uh, encourage founders to look for accreditation is in their advisors and in their advisory board or board directors rather than their investors, at least at the outset, provided obviously it's a recognized entity then it's not uh, capital from an unclear source. That could become a real big issue. But most of the venture investing doesn't come from any sort of fully accredited entity. And I suppose it's also more attention needs to be spent on what accountability you have to your investors and what expectation they'll have back from you. So that, I presume, would be quite a big consideration. Oh, it's huge. I mean, raising capital from people you don't know is an enormous burden. Right. As a board director, you have fiduciary duties, which I know you've touched upon on other podcasts. But hopefully as a moral human being, you also have a sense of responsibility. So, no, um, running your own business is relatively easy without outside capital because you only have yourself to answer to. And that's why I say I think it's important to surround yourself with people who have expertise in different areas that you can tap into because no founder Mm can know everything about all the ecosystem, you know, around building a business. And that leads me to one of my final questions around time, because presumably you do need to dedicate and budget a fair amount of time, not only to be your own IT help desk, but to look for investment partners and really think things through, do all the paperwork. Do you recommend that a founder spends a dedicated amount of time per week thinking around investment, looking into it and just prioritizing it? It's actually a really, really good question, Juliet, because what I don't 
think is successful in life is when you need investment, you reach out to a bunch of people and say, I need investment. And it doesn't work for multi-billion pound businesses and it doesn't work for startups, right? Because going to somebody asking for their money when you haven't met them before is always difficult. So the reason it's such a good question is you should be thinking about that way before you ever need investment. You should be building networks with the types of people who are either in your business, care about your business, might care about your business from the very beginning. Because if you build those networks and two years later you say, by the way, I'm now raising some capital, those people can say, oh yeah, I've lived that journey a little bit with you. I remember we met a couple of years ago and you told me what you were going to do. And then you can explain to them how far you've come. And that conversation around investment is then a much more natural one. So the amount of time I can't tell you, but the question is a great question because it focuses on the fact that you should be thinking about the types of people who might care about your business from the very beginning, way before you need their investment. So that pipeline is long. You really need to be proactively thinking about it months and months in advance. That's such good advice. Months and months in advance. Yeah, but not not five days a week, just you know, the odd call, the odd cup of coffee. But again, you will know your ecosystem. You will know other companies like yours, or you will know competitors who have been backed by X, Y, or Z. You will know people in your own network that value what you do. And you don't know if those people might be open to being an angel investor one day. But it's much better to ask them a couple of years into a conversation than out of the blue in two years' time. And given that 90% of startups fail, is there any other piece of golden nugget advice that you'd like to share with entrepreneurs who are thinking about starting a company or indeed having started and looking for investment? The reason most startups fail is not because they're bad businesses. It's because they run out of capital. So it goes back to the whole topic today, right, which is investment. So thinking ahead of any investment needs. So that's sort of step one. Step two is if you do then run out of cash and it happens, it doesn't mean you failed. I mean, it may mean you've lost some capital and the business is now performing. It simply means that you run out of investment and you can potentially leverage what you have learned and roll it into something new. But I think it's really important to not frame it as the great companies make it and the bad companies fail. Many very good companies simply run out of cash because they haven't engaged with the right investors or they've just been unlucky about the timing. So don't be dispirited, I guess, but think ahead in terms of funding because that's most often the reason that companies fail. It's because they run out of cash. Yeah. Some people have shared with me that they've been guilty of trying to perfect their deck or their product offering or their MVP to take to an investors. But actually, this is my favorite quote at the moment, is done is better than perfect. And if you're thinking about that funnel and that pipeline, it's just you have those coffees, get those meetings in. So you never get to that point where you run out of capital. Thank you so much, Costas, for your time. I've learned so much. Great advice. No, thanks so much, Juliet. Really enjoyed it. And good luck with the next one. I hope the advice Costas has shared has helped with some of the questions you have around investment. And if you'd like to contact Costas, you'll find all of his details in the show notes, along with a recap of the advice he has so kindly shared. Thank you for listening to How to Start Up. I hope these conversations offer you some confidence, encouragement and reassurance that you're on the right track. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I'd be so appreciative if you were to rate, review and subscribe, as it will really help other people starting a company discover it. 